Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Arjun Paliwal, who's the director at Investors Kit, the buyer's agency. We have a chat to him about growing up in New Zealand, how he was able to get to a six-figure salary in his early 20s, but more importantly, how he's amassed a nine-property portfolio all before the age of 27. He's a very generous person with his time and an open book in terms of what he's done in property investing and has some great advice for people looking to save money to get into property and to find high performing assets that are cash flow positive. Here's Arjun. Arjun Paliwal, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thank you for having me on, Mike. It's uh, it's certainly a pleasure. I'm looking forward to jumping uh, elbow deep into your story, Arjun. Can you kick us off though by letting us know who you are and what you specialize in? Sure. So uh, my name's Arjun, and um, I am the director at a buyer's agency called Investikit. And simply put, what I specialize in is helping people find and secure rare income-producing properties that put money back in their we- pocket so they can grow their wealth without compromising lifestyle. You've got our attention with that introduction for sure. So looking forward <laughs> to, to jumping into that. Give us a bit of uh, dirt on you growing up. What posters were on the bedroom wall as a youngster? Oh, so um, a huge basketball fan. So it was a mix between some Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and LeBron James posters. Nice. As you can tell, like three people from completely three different teams. So I was a bit of a, a bandwagoner, if that's what they call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I just loved good basketball, so I can't complain on that. <laughs> How you first got started in, in property and what your first investment was? How I first got started. So... Um, if I, if I go back to what was going through my mind, I actually was fortunate enough to work in a bank. I was working for a big four bank for the last seven or eight years. And um, use, during that time, I think it's very easy whilst you're working up in the bank and, and, and you know growing your career that sometimes you get so caught up in the fact that you're doing deals, helping customers, doing deals, helping customers, yeah. right? And I think where it really flipped for me was I was able to take a step back from that and realize that, hold on a minute, these deals are happening with these customers because they're super successful. Yep. It's not because we're a bank that just does that for them. All the banks have these products. It's just that this customer is super successful and they can actually do this. So this is where I was a bit selfish and my customer appointments started to take from 30 minutes going up to an hour. And the only reason why is because instead of just focusing on the yeah. deal, I wanted to hear more about their story and learn more about what they're doing, why they're doing it well. And, you know, as, as you know, real estate sort of underpins Australia's wealth, the majority of those conversations were obviously property related and how they did so well in property. So that, that really sort of kicked things off for myself in terms of flipping the switch and learning more from the customer rather than just trying to finish the deal with the customer. And uh, taking that approach, I combined that with obviously uh, my father, who's quite passionate about real estate, as well as you know other people, other professionals who I saw had some built some fantastic portfolios, and put that together. I actually still didn't think of investing. I just um, thought I'd go play it safe and 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 you know put funds together uh, with me, my wife, mum and dad, and we came together to buy this first home. So that was where it started, a first home, 
And um, and that's where really after that it took me to investing only because I saw a future beyond that. And uh, it all started from going back to the customers and, and really you know learning it's from them rather than just completing uh, their transaction. Picking the brains of super successful people that sort of comes through the door, I guess. It's a bit like why I started this podcast. You know, I've tricked people into sharing all of their secrets. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the best thing about it was, um, I know it sounds bad, but it's good bad. And I, what I mean by this is that the customers like kind <laughs> of had to tell me it because I was their banker at the same time as well. And, um, and look, they enjoyed the process too because sometimes we get so often and caught up in our own lives uh, and, and doing the things that we have to that we don't take a chance, a time to reflect. And I think for every time I asked the customer all these questions and I was curious, they were taking a moment to reflect and they felt good about where they were going. So I think that was a good opportunity a real win, to win, a feel win, good yeah, moment each time we chatted. People, people that are successful do like, uh, I guess, a moment to, to, to share what they've done and, and also, yeah, put an exclamation point on it for themselves to say, actually, yeah, I've, I've done pretty well. Can you tell us about uh, <laughs> exactly. growing up in New Zealand and how you made it across the pond to Australia? That is an, a funny story. So... I obviously born and brought up in New Zealand, uh, lived there for the first 18 years of my life and went through the high school, primary school, all the first year of university and I had no intentions of ever shifting. Born a Kiwi, living in New Zealand, that's my life. That was the initial thought. Things changed with my father in terms of his business in New Zealand and, and he decided to pivot and jump ship to Australia. Now, he is a uh, car engineer, so uh, fixing cars as a mechanic was a trade, and his own business in New Zealand, he decided to you know, explore the Australian waters. So he moved over to Australia first, and mum and dad obviously still together, but mum was just back and forth and giving dad the chance to set things up before she was contemplating the move and, and going over as well. Now, during that time, I still didn't think much of it. Great, mum and dad are doing what they have to do. I'll just go finish my uni, and, and that'll be that. Now, funny story, I was actually, tw I don't call it time ago, I call it in kilos ago, so 20 kilos ago when I could, <laughs> actually, uh, when I could actually move, um, I was uh, into dancing. A lot of hip-hop, crump, all these, you know, uh, things that the, the young guys at that period would sort of get into. Yeah, right. um, I actually had a few friends in Australia that were dancers as well, and, and I had that connection with them and thought, hey, you know what, like, I mean, if I can move unis over there, um, have a chance to, you know, catch up with these friends. My dad's over there. It couldn't be all too bad. So I jumped ship to Australia and, uh, you know, stayed at home with dad at 18. And the first sort of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a, a job because it was very sporadic, but my first little paid sort of job to get started was dancing. And I was uh, dancing with a, a hip hop crew and, and, you know, doing different performances. And I was even lucky enough, uh, with our crew to be actually doing a couple pre-curtain raises for Justice, Justice Crew, yeah, which wow. is a famous Australian dance crew. So that was pretty fun and that was a big reason uh, of, of you know moving over to Australia and since then I just stayed put. Yeah, wow. So the next interview you do, if someone sort of says, what brought you to Australia, I want you to just answer crump. That's, <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's actually cool it's funny how like there's just so many communities out there so many different things and um it's these little you know communities that can bring you together and, and make things happen that you didn't realize could happen yeah that's pretty cool um 
Full uh, full disclosure, I'm going to have to Google Crump straight after this interview, but we'll we'll, we'll move on from from my sort of lack of touch <laughs> with uh, what the kids are up to these days. Speaking of your old man, you you cite him as a pretty strong influence. How, how has he helped you get to where you are today as a as a mentor? Two parts for the old man. So number one, his practicing what he preached in New Zealand. So he really believed in two things. Number one, that business, whether it be small, medium, or large, is the ultimate tool to freedom. And um, his whole point of business was, A, he had the full control to give his customers the best possible experience. And number two, there was no roof over the head as a business owner because you can achieve what you want to achieve should it, you know, the steps pan out. But that was linked very closely to number two is, you know, money in the bank is not going anywhere. It's, it's not going to do anything for you. And his method to sort of use the success in business was to reinvest in property. So it's sort of like investing in yourself, providing customers an exceptional opportunity and value and using your skill to your absolute strength with no roof above your head of what your potential can do for you as a business owner. And then he took that away and realized that the simple economies and the bank and, and money in the bank is not going to do much and put it into property from a video. So that was the two parts in New Zealand as such that really inspired me. And, and he had, you know, built a significant portfolio of, of you know, millions and millions of dollars of you know, commercial properties and, and residential properties in, in New Zealand. And off the back of that, the second lesson from dad was his actual time in Australia. So one thing, he, he did something very different in Australia. When he came here, he still hasn't purchased or owns any real estate in Australia. And the lesson I learned from, from dad on that lesson there was he now drives around the suburbs where in 2009 and 2010, where he was coming back and forth for business meetings and very able to make some purchases of properties that were 200000 or 250000 worth now. 1.1 and 1.2 million. He was inches away from putting deposits and, and his you know numbers that he carried out. He put emotion into it. So the lesson that came from it was he's looked back at this and said, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd done that. So now my new motto is number, number one is that business is the tool of freedom and being able to look at um, how he's reinvested into property. And then number two is being able to look at his missed opportunities and never tell myself I wish I could have done that because I'm just all about taking yep. action now and figuring out what it, what comes from it. So that's the two biggest pieces of inspiration. That's that he's not a bad. Me. That's not a bad leg up, is it? It it isn't at all. Like it's pretty pretty good. And sometimes uh, I'm sure a lot of people have um, close family and friends around them that may be doing a lot of things that are perfect and, uh, and I mean well. And um, sometimes it's just hard to listen in or, or look up to them because you see them as that family and friend member and I think it's important we take a chance to really look up to them yeah, and I completely learn agree now you mentioned you started uh, started life at the at the CBA and uh, obviously picked the brains of a few people that sort of helped uh, I guess you to understand some of the the fundamentals behind wealth creation and then you were promoted sort of fairly quickly to a management role in charge of young adult engagement which is an interesting funky title um, that just kind of sounds a bit like you're handing out Twilight books, but um, sure, there's got to be more to it. <laughs> oh, very much so, more to it. So, um, uh, firstly, I'd, I'd love to say that the opportunity to work at you know 
CBA and work up there was fantastic. They, they were a great organization and gave me every, every single bit of opportunity to grow. Um, but going fast forwarding to the particular role. So after many years of um, branch management and working in the retail network, I wanted to diversify in my career and um, look at possibilities where I could not only have this retail experience with customers, but get to understand the business from the back end and what CBA certain initiatives and what they're trying to do and, and why. Now, this role was basically all about managing the customers aged between 18 to 29 year old, 18 to 29 for CBA nationally. So it was myself and my manager and together basically with a few stakeholders across different, different parts of the organization. Our goal was simply put to keep 18 to 29 year olds staying with us for longer at CBA, keep them happier, reduce the amount of 18 to 29 year olds that left and help them see us as their number one choice for any products and services uh, as their life grew and as their needs became more mature. So what we found is um, when customers reached that early 30 mark, that was a period where they're taking out mortgages on and commonly they were taking out more complex needs that are different to your bank accounts and maybe your credit card. And that whole role was about working on the strategies that CBA would like to present and would like to have in place and actioning them and, and, and you know, making them for the years ahead to be able to have that impact on that yeah, age. Wow, group sounds pretty progressive for, for a bank. Um, but I guess, Bringing us forward to now, at the, at the ripe old age of 26, you've chucked it all in to start your own business. Um, I'm interested in the in the motivation and the plans and what you're trying to achieve and, and also how you were able to take some time off to travel because you've, you've done some living in the last little while. <laughs> it's, it's been a load of fun. And um, if I start off with the, the business itself, so with the business, I have to give some credit to family rich you. I have an amazing, you know, wife who's always there on the side and uh, actually, you know, just, just with me along the whole journey. But rather than just being, you know, with me and we're each doing our own thing to contribute, she pushes me emotionally like, you know, like no one else and gives me that confidence to know that I can do something and I can do something because even though I may have looked like it, taken a lot of different risks and building a portfolio, I'm actually extremely calculative and imagine how many calculations are going against you when you're thinking of leaving a job of that, mm. you know, that position, right? So I then, it translated very quickly to two things. What is my best case and what is my worst case? Now, I believe risk for people who are very, you know, against risk, like how, how I was and taking all these calculations. I find that if you can calculate your worst case scenario and improve and not make it a goal of just achieving the dream or hitting the dream, for those people, if you actually make your goal not just hitting the dream or achieving the dream, you make it all about improving your worst case scenario, I find that that works out much better. So simply put, I was able to look back and go, all right, I've been investing in property, built a substantial income producing portfolio managed my career from a retail perspective with customers and had some success there as well as a strategic perspective in a support office role. And then I had a lot of personal development from my MBA that I'd completed and other educational um, you know, fronts. And then to top that off, 
I felt like I tried to leave on the best note possible. And instead of giving the standard four weeks notice, I tried to give the yeah. eight weeks notice just to, yeah, just to improve my worst case yeah. the best possible. So then taking these risks, like your worst case is so good that you almost look stupid by not taking these That's risks. That's an interesting to make approach. So you obviously, you, you thought, I've got the safety net. If, if it doesn't work out as I planned, the worst case is I go. Exactly, exactly. And so I think that was really comforting for myself. Uh, and and really helped me yeah, that's sort of take that's things a, to the next that's level. A pretty clever strategy. Now, your your first property you bought was a house in Sydney, which um, it probably deserves congratulations in itself, uh, given the Sydney market. But you're also able to save at the same time as having the the Sydney mortgage. You you you've cited some tweaks to the way that you live to be able to to do this. Can you run us through the sort of the household balance sheet uh, for how you were able to save money and pay off the house? Of course. So I think managing that money is probably not probably is more important than any type of you know unicorn investment that you could ever purchase in your life. And I think creating these systems for managing it and actually having a strategy in place will just be able to have you'll be able to look forward and know when you're going to achieve something rather than I hope I can get to yep. here by here, this this place. And then you think that up with your whole worst case scenario, it starts to look pretty good because you just keep improving your worst case. But to go back to the system, I believed in a very simple and structured approach. And what that was, was a 40, 50, 40, 50 rule. So I made this rule up. And basically the 40, 50, 40, 50 is a challenge I set myself. And what that challenge is, is to go between four different savings brackets, 40% net, 50% net, 40% gross, 50% gross. So I realized very quickly, there are two things that needed to happen as I was doing this 40, 50, 40, 50 challenge. And I realized this at probably the age of what, 19 or 20. And what the 40, 50, 40, 50 did for me is I realized that if my income is going to stay at a certain height, uh, living off, you know, 50% of your gross salary going into savings is not going to be able to be, you know, you can't live on it. And same with the 40% net. If my income was a certain level, it's not going to work on that. So the two game changers for me was A, understanding the challenge I wanted to set, the 40, 50, 40, 50, and B was actually having a rigorous approach to increasing my income. And that came in... A personal development B was you know not looking at my job from the what you love and what you hate because I find that even if you go find your dream job of what you do love there are going to be tasks in there as part of that job that you love that you're not going to like like if I loved a certain job in helping customers with their properties they're going to be paperwork things or something like that that I might not like so I think sometimes it's just about sucking it up and realizing where do your skills lie and where do you uh, where do people appreciate your skills and where do people appreciate your expertise? And then from that, you will naturally find things within there that you love and some things that you don't love. And it's just a matter of, you know, increasing those things that you love and trying to do more of those things and outsourcing some other parts through delegation yeah, exactly. and working together and as a team. Not a bad thing right? to figure out at 19. I think when I was 19, I was probably bordering on consciousness uh, after a few vodka and Red Bulls listening to Reef. <laughs> so there's something different about you, Arjun. <laughs> Uh, let's let's just uh, uh, I'll, I'll give a bit of transparency and honesty too. I, I think I was you know <laughs> finding the odd day or two to do just that as well at nineteen. So, 
so yeah, I mean, that's where it all started. I think the saving systems and having that challenge of getting through that. And then because I very quickly realized that it's not your cost cutting that improves your savings. It's basically being able to save first yep. as soon as your income comes in. And then the rest of it, you just live off. And honestly, I have this rule where with the rest of it that's remaining, I would never try and save a cent more. I had a goal of every fortnight when my pay was coming in to use every single dollar I had left after savings. And the reason why I did that was then I would never regret how much I saved and I'd never go into my savings. Savings boring, I cut off on so many things. So if I'd come back by Sunday or Saturday and I'd done a good job, I would go and treat myself to go have breakfast with friends, catch up with mates for beers, um, you know, take take my girlfriend out and 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 a good job. Um, and so I think that's really important to realize that if you've done a fantastic job of saving a particular percentage of your income and your goal is always about increasing income, your savings growth will happen rapidly and it will be in, uninterrupted if you go back and use all your leftover money and you don't try and save that extra and go, oh, maybe next week because I look, I saved $100 extra last week. I can take some from there and move some from here. No, that doesn't work. It's untouchable. I think, until that, you- that, I think that's very clever. You, you're almost saving in, in moderation. It's a bit like why we can't stick to diets when they're, they're very sort of extreme. If you've got a bit of leeway around the sides and you've hit your mark, then you deserve to be able to relax a little bit and that's going to make you more committed to the process, right? Oh, for sure. If the process is not an enjoyable one, then uh, you know how are you going to sustain it? And for me, the diet's a perfect example because I've enjoyed a lot of food during that extra spending as well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that, that's where the, the process started and, and I'm not going to shy away from saying that the income obviously was quite high at such a young age yeah. and yeah. to be completely transparent, I can share with you that you know, at 21, I was earning six figures and close to 23, I was earning, you know, 200K. And, and just, just a lot of these earnings kept going up because I believed in personal development. I believed in providing customers the most value I could. And I knew that if I consistently balance these two, reward comes back in one way or the other, whether it's a feel good, whether it's a financial reward, something usually happens when you do good out there in the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's a, an unusually high wage, but you put the work in, you did the MBA, you obviously grafted, you, you, you saw a long-term plan and you're committed. So, I mean, good luck to you there. You, you mentioned before uh, that cash flow is, is important to your investment. You've got a, you've got a positively geared uh, portfolio at the moment that's, that's income producing. How, how important was cash flow to your investing? Oh, it's so important that um, it, it, it's just... My, I, I've now, I've now through you know really being inspired by some others as well. I, I don't believe in the cash is king. I believe cash flow is yep. king. So, yeah. <laughs> um, to simply share, firstly, where the moment took off in my mind, and I thought of okay, how important is this cash flow investing? I firstly took out this common concept that's used. So you might see everywhere from property professionals or from friends and family they talk about the cash flow versus mm-hmm. equity. I think we need to get the eraser and remove that, remove the verse. I think that's the part that's confusing most of the customers and the strategies they take anyway. Remove the verse out. There is no reason why you cannot have cash flow and equity because your whole strategy shouldn't rely off the fact that I'm losing money to one day I hope I get money. It should be a balance of let me get some money regularly and I hope it grows. 
because at the end of the day, none of us can predict growth. And even if you're taking the buildings, the tall, tall buildings that you see in the CBD, the big property companies, the economics, the gurus, and you take all the experts' opinions, it's very easy that when you take these opinions as time goes on, that you believe what they say and move on. But very, very, you know, at very few occasions do people look back and go, what was their opinion five years ago? How did it pan out? I can assure you, you're going to see a lot of wins yep. and a lot of losses, which basically means it's, it's gambling, but in a very sensible, smartly put yep. way. So I just think of, let's take away all the, the difficulties and the, the, the concepts and the research and the data and put it aside and ask the one simple question. Would you prefer to lose money and hope you get some growth? Or would you prefer to earn money and growth is a plus? So that's when I decided to go down that avenue. Let me earn money whilst I'm building and let me get growth as a plus because in all honesty, growth is the biggest reason people invest. Like you cannot create immediate wealth or a huge amount of wealth just from an income. You create it from the growth of the asset and then leveraging the growth to be able to do other things. But the income is needed to get the most amount of growth because I find that two things happen in my investing journey. I looked overseas and looked to some of the biggest, biggest players in the property world in the USA space. And I very quickly realized that it's two things that can help you get the ultimate amount of success. Number one is who can get to the biggest portfolio. And number two is who can hold through the ups and downs the best. And I found that the reason why was two things. As your portfolio amasses, you only need a small dial shift in terms of growth percentage to get a huge amount of dollar exchanged. So a $4 million portfolio might grow 10% and that's 400,000. But when you're locked in with cash flow and you can't borrow anymore from the banks and you try and have two properties negatively geared because you know what, close to 90% of Australians are only able to own and do own two investment properties. They're just hoping for these two properties to potentially double in value, if not triple. Now, sure, in some cities that's happened, and I'm not going to discount that at all. But the fact that you have to hope for something to double and triple versus if you had a larger portfolio that could hold itself during tough periods due to income, and you only need to maybe move 5% to get the same value or a 6%, that to me sounded like the better odds. So all of a sudden, I just wanted to attack where the better odds were, knowing that they both carry risks, they both carry inefficiencies and things that work. There's just all about odds, and I just wanted to go that, where that it's makes slightly a lot of better. sense. You know, the bigger the portfolio, the more the gains are amplified, and on the other side, the the negatives are amplified. But you don't have to sell if you're hanging on for dear life because you're negatively geared. You might be forced to sell, but if it's a if it's cash flow positive or it's something that is is not sort of putting a a crimp on you day to day, you can just ride out the storm, right? So, so true. And, and another simple way to review that and what that future looks like, again, back to that worst case planning, this is where it, it really painted a clear picture in my mind. I go, okay, in the best of interest rates environments, what's my best and worst case? And then compare it to the worst of interest rates. So I quickly found that in the best interest rates environments like today, I'm earning an income. In the neutral environments of say the last 20 to 25 year interest rate averages of six to six and a half percent, I'm breaking even or slightly positive. And then if I take it to higher interest rate environments, periods where there's been some a different economic environment, I actually negative gear. 
So then I compare that to someone else investing. In the best interest environments, they're losing money and they're trying to use their lifestyle and compromise that to make it up. In the neutral environments of the last 20 to 25 years, there might be a, a couple of spikes or a lot of spikes in people who won't be able to afford the properties and they may have to sell and could that impact the growth that they've had over the years that's been great because of their property selection, but all of a sudden a market's impacted that heavily. Or then they look at the highest interest rate environments and suddenly you have the worst case of scenarios for people where it could even be borderline bankruptcy and other things like that because of the high interest rates and the fact they're losing money on low interest rates already. So again, that told me back to my best and worst case scenario and I was comfortable making these investment decisions because I knew in the best of interest rate scenarios, it's actually, so in the worst of interest rate scenarios, That's really, it's someone really else's best advice, case. That's advice and you've demonstrated to us all some of these uh, magical calculations you're making behind the scenes. Thanks for sharing those, Arjun. Um, I'm convinced and I'm sure the listeners are, but how do we find these investment properties that have got the solid cash flow and does that mean they have to be a certain type of property, i.e. they might have to be low maintenance so you've either got to go new or maybe a unit with a sinking fund? How do we find them and what do they look like? So I can on a high level explain that there's a few different types and they go up in value of cash flow too. So number one is your capital city, either A, new build, B, outskirts, or C, multi-dwelling. They are a high cash flow type of property. Then the phase two is going to regional. Regional could be the same filters across the three, and they will be high cash flow properties. And then you go switch from residential to commercial, and you might go commercial in a capital city, high cash flow, but slightly less in yields, as it's seen as in a, a very attractive place with lots of competition to um, invest in. And then you can go commercial, uh, some non-capital city areas, and then you get the highest. So it's like working between this left side and the right side of capital city, those type of investments, and the right side of regional or uh, city commercial, and trying to pick out and diversify between the four. Because I'm a big believer of you don't always have to diversify asset classes. You can diversify within one asset class. So with these four here, it's about you know engaging professionals, working with uh, experts and people who've done research, and going between these four. Capital, what I mentioned, regional, capital, commercial, regional, commercial. And they go up in the, in the cash flow as you flow from left to right as well. Yep. So I think that's the important parts to realize, A, where you're going to get them and what type of dwellings you're going to get them in. But B, most importantly, uh, yield isn't everything because sometimes you might have a high yield, but the ingoings and outgoings don't stack up because there might be high expenses that you're not aware of. So not taking face value is very important. And then that's where I feel professionals come in because if you're not taking face value and you're trying to do the in-depth research on each property, where are you going to find the time having a nine to five? Mm. So that's when I had the balance of, you know, every time I extend my search in areas that I feel may have some growth, I could potentially, again, potentially be at risk of having to keep saving more. And that's why I think if I have engaged experts who are can solve that matter of time, expertise, knowledge, and uh, connections, then I can make these decisions faster, but with someone helping me.
Fantastic. You, you've also got a bit of a strategy around picking property that fits within your portfolio. So it's not just about find, finding a property that's you know positive or neutrally geared with some good uh, capital growth potential. It, it actually sort of has to fit within the other properties you've got. You mentioned sort of diversifying within a single asset class. Can you talk us a little bit about your sort of methodology and, and, and how you calculate that? Yeah. So what I've very quickly found is that going between that left to right examples of the different types of properties and, and just really trying to look at what the end goal is. Firstly, the end goal is having a strong passive income to be able to do X things. And that X things might be able to you know, have the freedom of choice for yourself, be looking after you know family in times of need or, or being there for family or, or you know just being able to improve that quality of life and see something that's really close to my heart is being able to you know give back where you weren't in a financial position to give back in the past but because you invested yourself and didn't just comment on the side on some random Facebook news that's sad that, oh my god that's so sorry to hear that's not good and you actually did something about it because you put yourself in a financial position to do so uh, charitable causes is the is the number one long-term vision I see to be able to you know use that passive income and use my wealth creation to achieve. So then I looked at that long term and I try and reverse engineer to come down to where I am today. Um, firstly, it's scary to look that far sometimes because I set huge goals and I and it's nowhere near where I'm at at the moment, like these goals that I'm setting. But what I did then is that then I come back and I go, okay, what are the safest ways for me to get to there sooner while still being able to take some risks? And so when it comes down to that property strategy, I start thinking of, okay, through residential investments in certain areas, I might have a better vacancy, um, a lower vacancy rates to be able to ensure I'm getting a consistent stream of income here. From these type of properties, whilst I'm still getting an income, they might be more prone to, to grow. And then every couple of purchases, I want to be able to have a commercial come in the middle of it somewhere because then I need that true income boost that comes from a commercial. And of course, with commercial properties, you have to be so future thinking about the type of industry that your tenants in the economy um, and so many other things that, you know, you're not thinking for the next two years because I've got a nice long lease that's juicy. You want to think for the, you know, the long term and, and the asset that you've purchased. So I find, you know, going from that long term goal, if you reverse engineer it to where you are today, you go across those left to right assets of income producing from, you know, capital cities. X type of dwellings, regional, then commercial capital, commercial regional, you start to become one, a borderless investor. Then you start becoming two, is someone who's long-term focused on that buy and hold. And then three, you start diversifying within that asset class and you start to mix things that might have a very quick run rate between their, their tenants and, and the leases and some that might be absolute income producers and some that might be a little bit of income but more prone to grow. So I find that it's not about setting a 10-year plan of property and saying if you buy X properties and this numbers and throw that in a spreadsheet and you got that. I feel like it's setting that long-term goal, understanding you have to switch it up as time goes on because you know rates can change, economies can change, uh, workforce uh, diversity can change, the type of jobs out there that can change. So I believe in that long-term approach, but I don't believe in setting a long-term plan of I'm going to buy this many properties this many per year in this location all up front. I just feel like I know I have to tick the different boxes, but I have to be tactical at each approach to see where I'm going. Hence why I don't you know, even hand customers a 20-year plan with all these numbers thrown in a spreadsheet saying this is what you'll get when I really 
can't promise that and yeah, no one well, ever can. I guess there's strength in, in being flexible and adaptable to, to the marketplace as well. I, I want to talk about some of the deals that you've let go through to the keeper based on your due diligence. So we've, we've, we've learned a little bit about the types of properties that you look at and, and how you consider where they go into your portfolio. Can you talk to us about some of the deals that maybe looked good at face value but you've, you've, you've let go? This is um, actually... <laughs> This is actually taking me back down uh, memory lane now, and it honestly like makes you firstly think how much money I've lost, you know, <laughs> going through these assets and saying no to them when you do all the due diligence, right? And you pay for the due diligence. But then I now also think that those are the best decisions ever because that small amount of money lost or, you know, given up at that point then has stopped me from having certain assets that I shouldn't have in a portfolio. So. I come back to going about with those deals. I had a mix of some commercial deals. I had a mix of um, some residential deals across the country. And I think it's important to note whether you're buying assets that might be more prone to growth or some things that might be more prone to cash flow. There are going to be risks in both. And I firstly started off from a process that has no emotion in the buying process. So fun fun fact: out of my nine properties that I purchased. Eight of them I purchased without seeing. Wow. So that is just showing you how little emotion I have purchasing property. And I'm all about crunching different numbers, getting experts to do it. Because in all honesty, Mike, if I go and see a property, even now with my nine in my portfolio, what am I really looking for? Like if, if I've got a piston building inspector and they've checked all these different things, you've got plumbers and different parties checking that, you've got lawyers checking contracts, you've got numbers that are working out okay. Me deciding on this color of that paint or this or that is not – like that's just me being closed-minded to what I think is right, not what the market thinks is right from being a tenant and, and going there. So I find that even today, if I'm going to go and buy a property, what am I going to get out of seeing it? Because if I see it, I might make it worse off for me and I might throw emotions into there or B, am I really an expert in what these different per uh, periods are or what you should do with this property in that way because really I have to hire the experts to do that and that's why I'm a big believer of professional advice. So um, that's where I think when I come back to these deals that I've missed, you sometimes take all these numbers on face value and you get to that point but because I've thrown the emotion out of it, very quickly, when some due diligence gets to a point, for example, conveyancing, I was looking at a particular site in um, a Queensland location. It was a commercial site, huge corner block of 1,500 square meters of land, and it had a mechanic uh, with a retail mixed tenant on the side, an absolute beast of a yield at close to 10% wow. net. And this was going to deliver a huge amount of income. The person had been there for like, 10 years. They, um, the, the development area as well, if I wanted to knock down this particular area down the track, I could build unit blocks on it because across the road on the same corner block were, you know, 20, 25 units roughly, uh, going up multiple stories and, um, everything was just good, 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 good. And then I realized from due diligence, my lawyer had found that the site used to be a ah, you fuel got station. contamination problems. Exactly. And so... Again, because I hadn't seen it, because I hadn't dreamed of it on floor, because I hadn't seen those units in person and looked at it and gone, oh my God, imagine all these high rises and all that. I didn't try looking for more reasons to do the deal. I tried to just look for more reasons to listen to the professional and get their advice. So then it came between a cost and uh, analysis of, okay, 
you know, the contamination, there was a old, I believe fuel tank underneath and it hadn't been some, something was there. And, um, putting all those things together, obviously you pay your contract reviews, you pay your inspections, you pay the different people to look at it and a couple of grand here and there and multiply that over three years. I probably missed out on 10 to 15 opportunities because I didn't spend too long trying to look into one where I found all the things stack up. I threw out the emotion, got to negotiation and due diligence stages. And if at due diligence stages, it didn't stack up, I threw it away. So over that period, yes, you lose money. I think I've used about what $15,000 or 10 to $15,000 just gone, gone away down the drain um, in, in looking at assets and they don't stack up and you pay the due diligence fees. But anyone who'll tell you when things have gone right and things have gone wrong, that ten grand would yeah, or fifteen not grand would be nothing all, compared to it? the mistake. Now, can you tell us? Uh, you mentioned exactly. you've got the the nine properties. Can you give us a little bit more of a background of your portfolio in in terms of the numbers and the values and the LVR and yields and that sort of thing? As as much as you're happy to share, Arjun. Yes, open book. I'll share as much as I can. Um, so, at the moment, the portfolio, I believe, is. Uh, you know, valuations fluctuate. I believe it's worth close to 3.7 million, 3.8 million. And that's spread across eight residential properties and one commercial property. That's also spread across four states. So I'm invested in Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland. I'm actually working on a 10th deal at the moment in the commercial space. So that's quite interesting and trying to see what we can do there in the South Australia region. But Basically, with the portfolio, it's a mix of a home in Sydney, a commercial office in Melbourne, and to tell you about the yeah, commercial please. office, that's a very, very exciting one. Uh, that's yeah, that's over eight percent net yield. There is a two plus two plus two in terms of the lease and the length of it. The tenant has been there for ten years, and whilst office investments may not. Uh, they have some pros and cons, and I think you know we're moving into a world now where more people are working from home. Flexibility, um, you know, you don't necessarily need an office. Co-working spaces are some of the fastest growing things. Like in terms of an economic sense, on on paper value, it may not make sense. But then when I looked at it from a deeper level, my tenant is in a prime growth area of the economy we're moving into, and they're a uh-huh. shared co-working space uh, business. So I'm pretty much buying into an asset that's potentially going away from its value that it provides in terms of uh, the vacancies and things like that that could be growing, but I'm growing into a tenant that's absolutely prime for growth and they've been doing so well and they've been at this place for 10 years and it's a very popular office for coworkers uh, and, and things to go inside. So that's one thing I wanted to share that's quite exciting and obviously when you have a yield of over 8% and um, you have a 70% LVR on that one, actually now down to 60 to 65, you know, you start to get some pretty good income there because uh, when you do have some low LVR deals, the banks tend to love you a little bit more and, and especially for commercial being so gray with lending, everything's a case by case, you can sort of get the best deal out of it. So that was one of the juiciest cash flow deals over there. Um, but then I've also got a unit block of four in Tasmania, four units, and, and this is a really an exciting one to share. I think this one, this one is probably my favorite investment at the moment. With this unit block, I purchased it for an amazing price of three hundred and sixty-five thousand wow, dollars. Right? Come on! Wow! No, no, that's the whole lot. <laughs> and it's not in in a little city. I mean, of course, Tasmania is little uh, compared to some of the others. But in terms of within Tasmania, it's in a very growing city, and it's a nice area called Burnie. 
and infrastructure development going around there, um, you know, tourism picking up and prices have been moving in the right direction um, in, in some cases as well. So what I find that what I found that was really really exciting about this block uh, was look there was a, a background story to it that wasn't so nice on us for the seller's side of it but as a buyer I must add that emotionless investing is important if you want to you know grow that portfolio and you you sometimes have to take advantage of these opportunities where the seller may having maybe having an unfortunate circumstance and basically uh, that was part one so the negotiation came out excellent coming down from over 400,000 to 365 but what was really really important with this one is it's four units three two bedroom units and one one bedroom unit at the time they were all renting for around 675 or 680 per yeah. week so it's a huge yield as you can imagine i think overnight gross and what's really exciting is that some people sometimes stay away from units that are already strata titled because of the outgoings but they weren't too bad when you yeah. consider the income being that high, right? Now, there is a very, very unique advantage you get of strata titled units compared to selling them at once and compared to reviewing them individually. So the advantage was that I bought them as one. So the deal that the bank will always do is they won't ever try and value something more at the time of purchase. They'll say, yes, we accept what was purchased at the contract of sale value and here's the loan for X percentage against that. But when six months down the track came up or three or four months down the track came up, I decided to do a revalue of each unit individually. And so when you do that, the valuer in some cases, for this case definitely, is not going to be able to take the thought of the whole site because they have to pay the their due diligence say, I'm comparing a one-bedroom unit to other one-bedroom units. I'm comparing three two-bedroom units to other three two-bedroom units. So now you go, okay, what's out there in the Bernie area? All of a sudden, when I add up all these new values, I'm looking at close to five fifty dollars to $600,000 in value in this unit. So each report came in for each of these at the amounts of, you know, one fifteen to one thirty dollars or $140,000 for each unit. And all of a sudden, you've built a huge amount of equity just based on at, because of the time of purchase, so you've made your equity from the purchase. And you haven't made your equity from sitting around. Titled, or there's an option to to do that down the track. You could sell them individually. Right, yes, okay. they're already strata titled at purchase. If, if it wasn't strata titled, the value might not be able to do that. But that's a very clever thing that you've done there, because technically you could sell them individually. So not, why not value them individually? It, exactly. So. From that perspective, um, the best thing is because I owned all of them. There was no body corp or anything like that. Number two is, yes, I understand the outgoings and the rates for each and all these different things can add up. However, when the income is that high, it, it really doesn't make much in terms of the outgoings. And so you find, I find myself having what you know, close to 10,000, if not more, in passive income from this deal, uh, as well as being able to have a huge amount of value generated and what's really, really exciting is the vacancy rates are in the 1% range or 1.2. So it's a very popular you know, area and it's quickly filling up. And uh, there are so many cosmetic renovation opportunities. I have upside as well. So on top of the value, I have upside to use that value to you know, repaint the whole of the outside, um, clean up the insides, redo the driveway, improve the carport. And if I look at the high end of one to two bedroom units in Bernie that are really looked after and quite good, you're looking in the 200s in that. So if I can do some cosmetics, we might be looking at 200 plus per unit, which takes it now to the you know seven, eight, nine hundred sort of mark for the whole block. Yeah. So 
it, it really provided it's it's the best opportunity that I had or the best best investment that I had on there. Um, so yeah, look, that's that's a couple of the investment stories as well as I've got you know three properties in in the Brisbane area, uh, a dual occupancy new build that's helped me from a tax perspective. Um, then I've got two other existing builds, and uh, yeah, so that compromises the the nine property portfolio. Uh, at that asset level and obviously cash flow coming in from from different That's properties. Fantastic and, and thanks very much for being so so open with that. There's some really interesting case studies there. I'm, I'm interested in, in where you see currently opportunities for investors. Obviously, it's a, it's a tough lending environment. Um, you might be lucky with some CBA connections or at least a, a high salary but assuming that people can get their finance, where where, where, are you, where do you think the opportunities are for, for getting some of these these good deals? So I think even before the deals, uh, something that's really interesting for people who are looking to invest to realize is that I believe in this rule called the four plus one rule. And I believe if you don't, and to quickly explain what that four plus one rule is, before you invest, you usually only have access to two ways to getting your money, to get sort of steamrolling on purchasing an investment or multiple investment. And the two ways you have open to you is regular savings, the system that you create that I shared earlier, as well as lump sums. And that could be in the form of bonus, commissions, tax returns, or a gift of some sort. When you invest, what many people don't realize is why it's so challenging to get your first versus your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, so forth, is that you open up two more parts of the quadrant. And it's number one, appreciation. So appreciation in the income or the place that you've purchased or the investment. It could be anything, stocks or anything, right? And then number two is tax. So tax, the system of tax is simply a system of incentives that the government has built and they want you to do certain things. The government wants your help, Australia. They want your help, right? (laughs) And basically the government is saying that if you do X, you are helping us with this and for that reason, we will incentivize you. So it should be in your absolute upfront interest to figure out ways you can get tax back because tax back equals helping the government equals helping Australia. So when I go and buy a home or when you buy an investment or get an investment and get your depreciation and other things done, you impact so many jobs around the country. It's unbelievable. You've got someone building the home. You've got someone managing the property. You've got a tenant who can live in there. You've got, you know, now someone who can collect rubbish on the streets. You've got plumbing, plumbing that can be done. You've got depreciation reports that you can have Maria and it's quickly who can now process your loan. You pretty much touch the whole economy almost just from making an investment. So now when you think of this four plus one rule, you've got regular savings, lump sums, your appreciation and tax. And that's how investors can really steamroll. And then that plus one is when you really start getting a lot of investments going well for you, you actually start catching the attention of other people. And then you become the the plus one is called OPM, other people's money. And this is, again, how some of the wealthiest rapidly grow. There are going to be people out there who can invest but don't want to take on the risk levels that you are comfortable taking on. There might be people out there who have money but don't have the knowledge and they don't want to have execution on their end because they just feel like they would rather give it to someone who has that and can do that and be a part of the journey. So we'd see that in the form of joint ventures, developments, or in some cases as well. Um, I'm having some people potentially discuss with me about leaving some money with me, getting a promised X return for them uh, on an X time frame, 
and then I would use that money to invest in property. I would carry the whole risk of, you know, the loan, the property, the tenant, but in all circumstances, I would need to guarantee them a rate of return and an end appreciation outcome if we have an exit strategy that goes on. So this is when now people can start to really grow. So I think just before I get to that location, I wanted to explain that because if you really see investing from that view, the four plus one rule, you can now realize why there's people who can steamroll and start to grow some huge portfolios after they get their first versus people who are struggling to get mm. their first. So then it now comes to, okay, what does the first look like? And honestly, there is no proof that suggests that if you buy in something expensive, it's going to grow more from a percentage view versus if you buy something affordable. Right now, a perfect time in the Australian market, if you have a look, is trends on the affordable range of properties versus the premium and the, the differences between you know, the last 12 months and growth of the premium locations that have had some slides versus some affordable locations that have had some upwards movements. So this market and markets as a whole, right? you never really buy the market. You never buy Sydney when you see a Sydney market statistic. You buy a property within that. And that Sydney market is made of many places that are performing and many places that aren't performing. And even within those places could be streets that have certain houses that are performing and some aren't. So I think when you get to that stage, you start to realize that it's not always about how much money you have to put in. You can get started with a low amount as well, say 45, 50,000 could help you get into a, a sub 300K property and still have a bit of money left over, yeah. right? So then I now move to where to invest in and what type of things to invest in. Um, personally, if you start with that fundamental of it gives income and growth is a plus, I think for those people that may have, you know, be quite risk adverse, that will help a lot of help you ease a lot of things in your mind. So I think that's that, you know, gives income, growth is a plus. And then where this trend continues of affordable locations, you know, tightening that gap to the premium space or the more median prices and just coming closer, um, you may see areas that, you know, from the South Australia market in Adelaide to the Queensland market in Brisbane being such a major capital city but having such affordable price points to some parts of Tasmania really bringing up some opportunities. What else I can also see is the importance of understanding the political environment. So if there are some things that are changing, obviously you don't make your strategy based on a tax incentive because that is a plus to your strategy. But let's just assume some things occur in this negative gearing space and the sole reason why people have been losing money to be okay with getting some back starts to fade away. And let's just say now Australia starts to adapt the American way of investing, which is you buy an investment property yep. to earn money, not lose it. Then you might see those areas that are earning money start to attract more people from all over the country. So areas that may have some higher yields in Brisbane, of other parts of Queensland, Cairns, uh, potentially even a market that has, has had no attention where Darwin and, um, you know, all these high, high yielding, you know, Tasmania areas. Could they? Look, I don't know. Again, growth is crystal ball. But these are some of the things to be aware of, although you should be mindful knowing that tax or other parts of tax shouldn't be your strategy. They should I be sweeteners to how advice, you invest. Arjun, and that's going to get some people doing some research in some of those locations, I'm sure. Could you quickly tell us a little bit about your business investor kit and, and how people can get in touch with you if they want to chat about uh, engaging you to, to help them out with their portfolio? Of course. Investor kit is all about helping investors 
find and secure those rare income producing properties that put money back in their pockets so they can grow their wealth without compromising lifestyle. So simply put, that is the whole purpose of Investikit. Investikit is a buyer's agency. So if you think of all these things that go on in the property world, whether it be you know the time to go and find the place, the experience of where to start and what numbers to look at, the knowledge of where to go and how you look about things and what numbers are important and what numbers might not be important. Uh, most importantly, you touched on a part, which was connections and networks. Do you have access to on off-market properties or are you simply looking where everyone is looking, which is online? And then are you dealing with people who may have some sort of bias to their party? For example, a real estate agent may look after their sales uh, vendor very, very well um, yeah. because that's where their you know, interest lies. So it's all about providing customers the solve and the solution to these pain points and really being on their side as a party that earns no money from anyone else but the customer, which is the buyer. And I think that's important to point out because then it's only the Beautiful. buyer's interests I have at heart. So that's where Investikit is and you can reach and find Investikit on www.investikit.com.au or you can even find it on www.facebook.com slash uh, Just to wrap things up, we've got uh, quite a lot of advice al already, and this might be a tricky one for you. But if you could sign off with imparting one piece of advice, if you had to pick one thing, what would that be? The one thing I would pick, Mike, is something that may make people really think about what I just said, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an intriguing one, right? So research is dangerous. That's what I'm going to leave people with, and I'll, and I'll explain why. Research is just so dangerous, you have to be careful. If you go looking for something, I can guarantee you, you will find it. If you go on Google right now and search Sydney real estate opportunities, you may find 10 to 20 articles, links, so-called research, anything, whatever it may be, to say and show you and convince you and display to you the opportunities that lie currently in the Sydney market. Now you delete that Google search and type in Sydney market crash and you will find 10 articles to 20 articles of people talking about the crash. So the problem here is everyone always starts with the research. My advice is don't start with the research, finish with the research. And where you should start is finding that person of inspiration who practices what they preach. So it may be someone on the highest of levels, like the highest, highest of levels, um, doing something extremely well. And this, this, this sort of advice applies to anything. If you then go, this is someone who is practicing what they preach. She or he is doing that in that way. Now, because they're practicing what they preach, they're currently doing it. Let's just say their actions are too far because of, of it being so large. The next thing you should do is find three to five people that follow the same line but are perhaps closer to where you are in, in different phases. Then if you end with research, you're pretty much saying, I know where I want to go because X person is there. They're doing the activities I want to do and I feel comfortable doing. And I found five people that are sort of on that same journey as that, that bigger goal person, but they're sort of in different phases and closer to where I am. I'm going to get on this train and follow it and I'm going to research, use research to aid me to get me there faster and stop me from making mistakes. Because if you find where results are done, you will get there. 
if you find looking for something, you will look for something and you'll find that too. So my thought and advice to leave is research is dangerous. Find the person, then use the research to get to the person. Don't start with the research. That's absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure you're going to be one of the five, uh, uh, John. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Mike. Really appreciate you having me on. 